Hello and welcome to another edition of Latina Life with Jenna Malena. Today's Super Latina is an award-winning celebrity chef, an entrepreneur, an actress, and an author. She left the legal world for the culinary world where she celebrates her Afro-Cuban roots. She's the current host of TV One's Culture Kitchen. Welcome to the show, Chef Bren Herrera. How are you? Hello, hello ladies. Thanks so much for having me. I am well. Oh my gosh, it's, it's so, so great good to, to have be here. It thanks is. for having me. Yeah, it's great to be here. And, and thanks for rallying because I know you're you're healing from a recent, you know, bout. Uh, yep, yep, yep. Thank so, you. Thank you so much. So let's get, you know, right to it. I understand that you were born in Cuba and then you moved to DC. Um, I think you were a little young, but what do you remember? Do you remember anything about being in Cuba or have, did you guys go back, you and your family to kind of solidify the Cuban roots as you were growing up? Yeah, so I was born in Havana and at the, I don't remember anything, quite honestly. I left when I was 17 months or my family uh, were political refugees. So we left when mm. I was 17 months and my father's side of the family is Jamaican. So we went to Jamaica first and we were there about two weeks trying to get our paperwork legalized and in order, et cetera, in order to make our entry into the U.S. So naturally the story goes for most Latinos or specifically Cubans, we went to Miami first mm -hmm. and my grandparents were there. So we were, we landed in Miami and we were there about five years. And I do remember Miami very distinctly, even though I was very young. I remember living in Kendall and things like specifically remembering my father teaching my mom how to drive. I'll never forget. I don't know exactly where we were, but I remember it being nighttime and doing kind of like donuts and circles in a parking lot mm -hmm. and just being really excited for this journey and experience. I remember when we became naturalized also, mm -hmm. uh, that, that was really fascinating. And again, I was five years old, I remember. And I remember having to actually get on the stand and raising my right hand and pledging. And now as an adult, I look back and I've never actually told this story publicly actually. Mm -hmm. But now when I look back, I'm like, wow, what is it? How can a five-year-old possibly get on a stand and plea to, you know, or read or recite or whatever. Right. But um, that's really most of my memory in Miami. And then also my, my very, very first childhood friend or my very first friend as a human being that I remember there, they were also Cuban and I'll actually be seeing her in two weeks. She lives in, in Boston and her parents and my parents were very, very good friends from Cuba, from elementary school. Mm -hmm. So kind of like this multi-generational legacy thing. So I remember that family distinctly and my mom was a caretaker and I remember having a little blue Smurf car. That's a lot of my memory <laughs> of Miami. And uh, um, oh, and one last thing, and this will be interesting because it kind of ties into food. My mom had a really good friend named Gloria and Gloria was from Colombia and they used to make these papas rellenas filled with picadillo. And I remember watching my mom and Gloria make these and stay up very late at night making these papas rellenas. And then they had this little cart. It wasn't even like a truck. Mm. Um, it was a little food cart and they would post up on, I don't know what corner and sell these papas rellenas con picadillo. And yeah, that's all I really remember about Miami. And we ended up moving to DC because my father was a political journalist. At the time he was the sports editor of El Miami Herald, which is oh, one wow. of the biggest papers in Miami. Mm -hmm. um, and then he got a job with Radio Martí, which a lot of Latinos probably are aware of. It's an organization under the State Department. And so that's what brought us to the DC area. 
and I've been here my whole life. Wow. And still there. Life, yeah. And still here. I did live in Atlanta for about seven years between 2006 and 2012 or about six years. And I have gone back to Cuba, not as often as I'd like. And that's a whole other conversation that I really kind of want to explore in conversation with somebody, but I've been back twice formally to Havana to visit with my late grandmother and my tia who's still there. Mm -hmm. And then I went back on the first inaugural flight with JetBlue. Um, it was a big pomp and circumstance media event. So I was invited by JetBlue to be on that flight. And that was really special, but I didn't stay. And we flew into um, Santa Clara. So I didn't get to go to Havana. Right, right. And that I mean, was a long time ago, yeah. You know, it's so hard. Like my parents, I'm a first generation here. You know, okay. my parents are from Mexico. And growing up, we used to go back like every summer. Like that was yeah. my summer vacation. That was my summer camp being with my cousins, you, oh, know, fun, being, yeah. you know, Tijuana, I was there, that was close, obviously only three hours away, or if we're able to fly to Guadalajara where my grandmother, you know, was, but now I've had kids, you kind of yeah. get rooted to like everybody yeah. used to schedule, right? So, I mean, it was very, I mean, I could count on one hand, a couple of fingers, how many times I've taken the kids down and it's definitely, yeah, awesome. I believe it. I believe it. Yeah. Right. So I totally feel it. Well, with Cuba, it's a little more it's a little more complicated because obviously the U.S. doesn't have a formal mm. relationship with with the U.S. So and, you know, the, the political situation in Cuba is such that if you left Cuba after a certain year, you have to travel back as a Cuban citizen. So in essence, you're relinquishing your American citizenship. So it becomes a little tricky. And mm -hmm. I fall in that category. Mm -hmm. So traveling back and forth, depending on the administration, whether it's GOP or Democrat, it just you just never know. Right. Um, so when I went, the two times that I've formerly gone with my mom and my sister and my auntie, Amy, I would, my another grandmother, um, that was under Clinton, mm -hmm. but I haven't gone since. And then again, when I went with JetBlue, Obama was president, but that was because he was doing a lot of um, diplomacy and trying to really open up things with Cuba at the time. Right. But it just kind of depends on who's in office and, you know, what's going on. But it's generally not, it's not as easy as somebody in, in the U.S. of Mexican descent to go back and forth to Mexico. It's, we don't have that, that flexibility. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very different. And like you said, I mean, it's such a big conversation to have. I know that's a topic oh my God, yeah. we want to get into. So, so I think, so I think, uh, so I think because of that, my parents made it incredibly, they prioritized making sure that we celebrate the culture at home and that we are just as Cuban as we are American. So, you know, that meant that the food, the dancing, las telenovelas, que si la comida, que si tú sabes el, el, el hablar en español en la casa, like we weren't allowed mm -hmm. to speak English in the house because my mom was like, oye, en la casa solamente inglés o español porque van a aprender inglés de todas maneras cuando estén en la escuela. So it was a really dynamic situation that I didn't know that was dynamic. I just knew that that's what it was. Like we were only allowed to speak Spanish at home and then English out when we were in school and with our friends or whatever. And I'm so thankful for that. Like, I can't explain to you how that was probably one of the best decisions other than leaving Cuba. That was probably one of the best decisions my parents made was to instill in us this really profoundly deep sense of orgullo. Mm -hmm. de ser, no solamente Latino, pero también ser, or específicamente ser Cuban. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm a Cuban, a thousand percent. Like, um, sometimes they're like, "Oh my gosh, where'd you learn your your Spanish? It's so good." I'm like, "Oh my god, I didn't learn English until I was six. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. 
Oh my God, that is amazing. I do know because it is so difficult, especially for people like our parents who immigrated, right? Because right? Right. Um, I know in LA and I've had other guests on as well, talking about the different things and how, you know, who learned Spanish when, you know, right, folks right. like I didn't, my parents, I learned English first. My parents just felt because of, you know, they're growing up here in LA, schools are in English, they don't want me to fall behind. That's, so that's how right. they didn't right. learn until right. I went to my grandmother's house. But, um, and what a lot of nobody spoke you know, English. And I just learned right. telenovelas and I just went ahead and did it. And it was fantastic. And it was great because you have that connection to your heritage and to the place where like your family comes from. But it is, you know, really difficult. I know that some people just haven't, some of the Latinas we talked to, one of my friends hasn't learned and it's, it was a sore subject for her because she wished that she knew, you know, how to, you know, speak Spanish. Yeah. And, so we um, all do. It's, it's five of us and we all speak fluent Spanish and fluent English. Oh, that's amazing. And how was it growing up, like, you know, as, you know, a Cuban in Washington, D.C. and speaking Spanish? I mean, was it welcoming? Was it, were there any challenges like when you were in school? Um, That's actually a really good question. And again, something that I, you know, I love these interviews because I I feel like I explore a different piece of my childhood in every conversation. But, you know, so I'm, my fa- my father's family's black or my my mm-hmm. grandfather was jamaican and i'm cuban born and i speak spanish and with the name herrera it's obvious mm-hmm. um so i feel like i went through this identity crisis because i identified with my black friends and exclusively mm-hmm. and i don't know if that was a product of the absence of other latinos that looked like me in my school and in my childhood, like there weren't any other Latinos that looked like me or my sister. Mm-hmm. Um, we had black features and the other Latinos that were there were Central American. So mm-hmm. a lot of El Salvadorians in the Northern Virginia, DC area where I grew up. And that culture is just very different. And, and, and so funny enough, because there was such a heavy concentration of El Salvadorians that was my first culinary job was working at an El Salvadorian restaurant. My uh, two, my brother's um, three children, four children are from El Salvadorian women. Okay. So it's a, it's a culture that I'm very now intrinsically connected to, but it's a culture that's so vastly different from Caribbean culture. Mm-hmm. And so that said in school, both, I mean, elementary, middle and high school, there just weren't any Latinos that looked like me, spoke like me. And so I naturally intrinsically gravitated to the black people. And I felt now I felt like I, when I got to college, I felt like I had gone through an identity crisis because I never really fit in. The black kids were like, yeah, but you speak Spanish. So you're not really black. Or the Latinos were like, but you speak Spanish. So you're not black. And then the white people were so very confused because, right. you know, at the time, you know, in the, in the nineties, hip hop was like the thing and the cultural, you know, pinnacle of, of just America. And that's what I just gravitated to 100%. And there's just absolutely no question about that. But I spoke fluent Spanish. And when you consider that Black history isn't really taught in schools, there's no real context. And more specifically, because Latino culture isn't taught, and it's taught even less so than Black culture and Black history, there's just this huge misconception and misunderstanding about who Latinos are and specifically who Afro-Latinos are. And the fact that we look so 
different. And if you consider that Latin America is composed of 21 countries, imagínate, like there are so many subcultures. Yes. So absolutely. I, yeah, like I, it was just a really weird time for me. Um, it was, yeah, it was just a really weird time. I would say that I got the least love from Latinos. Um, and that was through college and even my early 20s because again, the Latino population here, it wasn't heavily concentrated with Caribbean people. So I didn't have any Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, Cubans, not really here. Um, right. And so, yeah, there was just a lot of like, you know, there was just a, there's a lot of misconception around Afro-Latinidad and what black people look like and what Latinos look like. And, and it actually, you know, it seeped into my time in Atlanta as well. And that's mm. a whole other conversation, but I, <laughs> I experienced that there. Mm. But by and large, I would say that, you know, Colorful. Like my, my parents' home was and remains to be the epicenter of culture because there's all this, there's all this culture happening, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we speak English in the streets and we, you know, live our very American life in the streets. But then when, when you come into our home, you know, it's que si la musica again, que si the dominoes mm-hmm. game. At any yes. time of the day, any, any day of the week, there is a dominoes game going there's always coffee there's always rum there's always food and so and we you know, I, we live in a very um middle class neighborhood and we brought culture to the neighborhood if, if I can say that so <laughs> yeah it was just a really really fun it was a fun like childhood but it was definitely I feel now uh painted with some questions or you know always having to defend myself I remember um, we ended up really being really good friends, but a little white boy down the street, when I say mm-hmm. down the street, like literally four houses, yeah. he used to call me and my sister little brownies. And that is so racist, but we were the most brown blackest kids in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. it, it was just interesting. Yeah, for sure. It was just interesting. I mean, yeah. you know, it's interesting. You, you touched on a couple of points, like, you know, one and the, one of the missions that Melaine and I decided to do this podcast is because we really wanted to create unity within the Latina community, you know, and when I say right. Latina, I know where there's so many different cultures, I mean, Afro-Latinas, you know, European Latina, right. you know, Mexicans different than Cuban and that sort of thing. Right. And um, it's interesting how some of the conversations we've had have touched on sort of the lack of support and unity, especially within the Latina community. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's funny. I was literally just having this conversation with uh, my producer, actually, the other night. Mm. We were talking about how with respect to, and I'm going to say this very openly and very yes. candidly. Yes. Yeah. I was saying to her that, you know, the, the and I know that we'll talk about the show, but the, the very, my, my journey, professional mm-hmm. journey in the food space, food travel and lifestyle space has been with the very pointed intention to celebrate our culture and introduce the general public to what Latinos Latinos are and specifically who Afro Latinos and Afro Caribbean and Caribbean people are. Um, We are, we are a minor subsect of, or we are a minor subculture of the Latino culture here in the U S right. Obviously Mexicans dominant and it's amazing, but because Mexicans dominant in this country, Caribbean culture is, and it's Caribbean culture is also very much on the East Coast, right? So like New York, mm-hmm. New Jersey, Miami, right. and a little bit in DC, maybe a little bit in Chicago, which is in the Midwest. But because of that, 
I find that we are like a subculture. So my intention has always been to celebrate the culture, introduce people to this beautiful diversity in Latinos, you know, ranging from Central America, um, South America and the Caribbean. And I've done that so proudly. And I feel like I've done our people in our culture um, justice. Yeah. And then conversely, I will say that in the last couple of years, as I taken my career and, and the food to a, a different level where I'm more intentionally and more publicly and more visibly celebrating our culture on this ma major platform, I feel like I, I have not really resonated with the very people who I'm trying to celebrate. Really? Yeah, and, that, and I'm saying this very candidly just yeah. because it's my, it's my story. And right. we literally were just having this, I, we were literally just having this conversation a couple of days ago. I was like, man, like, I, I thought that I would have gotten way more love um, and excitement from my Latinas. And I can, and I, and I will tell you that I really haven't. And I've been, I've, it's mystifying to me. It's really mystifying to me. It is because, yeah. I mean, for me, whenever I see, you know, the representation, I mean, that's what's important. You see, like, if, right, you, right, right. if you see something in front of you, then you know, it's out there, then you're going right. to believe it. Right. It's like, well, if you right. don't see it, then you for don't sure. know. Right. So by right. seeing you and seeing your story, you think that would be opening it up and it's, you know, what do you think are some of the, you mentioned yeah. this, misconceptions, you know, yeah. what are some of the misconceptions that you've had to deal with? Mm. Some of the misconceptions. Um, a lot of them have just been really superficial. Mm. I, I've experienced more misconceptions because I speak fluent English, right? And I'm educated yeah. here. So I've seen misconceptions through the lens of my mom's experience. So for example, mm. My mom speaks English, but she speaks English with an accent, like a lot of, you know, our parents, you mm -hmm. know, of that generation, because they were, they came here as full on adults, right? Yeah. And it wasn't their first language. But I remember where people, you know, being out with my mom and people, my mom will speak Spanish to me or my cousin mm -hmm. or whatever. And because I speak to my mother almost exclusively in, in Spanish and people will be like, like this is speak English or go back to your country. Mm. Like these are very real things, very real experiences here in DC, which is like the epicenter of culture in the world because we've got the seat of government here and you've got every nation represented here because we've got, you know, dignitaries yeah. and, and diplomats or, or lo que sea. But right. so to see that right here in DC is mind boggling to me. And, you know, for me, I, I celebrate my mom every day because I'm like on any day, my mom can speak two languages where the very yes. people who are criticizing her don't, mm -hmm. right? So things like that, people, you know, the misconception that um, Latinas live off the system or Latinos just come here to make babies. Like literally these things, mm -hmm. these are true conversations that I've heard that just baffle me because these are not just misconceptions, but they're also quite racist because yeah. in essence, what you're saying is that these people aren't educated and so they make, you know, these decisions that have the um, consequences. Mm -hmm. I can't speak to the statistics of these things, but it's just those, again, those are, those are some of the misconceptions that um, have, you know, in my situation, I think prob probably a lot of Latinas can speak to that or Latinas can speak to personal experiences with misconceptions that people have about us and who we are and, you know, our language and et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I can really identify 
anything that really, I don't think that I can identify anything that really impacted my life other than those kinds of assaults toward my mother. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah, and I've seen it. I mean, growing up, it's like, I was always the liaison too, you know, yeah. my parents, you know, so when yeah. they learned, you know, smash, but of course it's like with an accent, but let me tell you, I can't tell you how many times and you hear me talk right now. You're hearing me speak. I was born here right. how many times throughout high school, throughout college, as I entered the work industry, the TV industry, they would say, right. where are you from? You have such an interesting accent. Oh, oh, where are you from? Yeah. That, so that too, right? Like, <laughs> where are you from? I'm from LA. From? I'm like, well, see, I, I can actually say, I say I'm from DC because I am like, I've been here my yeah, entire yeah. life, but I know, you know, what people mean were like, oh, well, where are you from? Yeah. It's like, where no, I'm from? LA. No, where, where are you really from? Where are you really from? I'm from from yeah. LA. <laughs> from LA. I, I don't, I don't take, I don't, I'm not sensitive to that anymore because I recognize that the general public and mm-hmm. most people who are not of an ethnic background just don't know what it's like to be from another country or another mm-hmm, culture. Mm-hmm. So right. I don't take it. I don't meet I don't meet up. I mean, my mommy said, like, let it just, you know, brush it off because these people just don't know any better. Um, and people, I'd like to think that people are curious. So, right. Right. But, but the whole, where are you really from? Like, you need to take it at face value. Like if I tell you I'm from LA, okay, yeah, exactly. From LA. Um, I, I think the better question would be, what's your heritage? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I love what your mom said. Like, oh yeah, my mom was like, get, get like just brush it off and let it slide off your shoulders because you know they just don't know any better. Um so yeah, like I don't let those things bother me anymore. People ask me where you're from, I'm like, oh, I'm from DC. Oh, yeah. okay, well your last name is Herrera. Okay, I'm Cuban. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, were you born in Cuba? I think a lot of people do are surprised at the fact that I was born in Cuba and I'm yeah, they're like, oh my God, like you were born in Cuba. So how did you learn your English? So I get, I do get that a lot. Not right. so much anymore because, you know, I'm a professional and whatever, but I do get that. Where did you learn your English? Which I right. think is weird. Like, what do you mean, where did I learn my English? Like, yeah. What yeah. kind of question? Where did I learn my English? Like, we live in America. Like, where else am I going to learn my English? Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I think that's a really weird question. So now, yeah. or, I, or you speak English really well. Really well. Why, would, why wouldn't I speak English really well? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Or you're so eloquent, right? Eloquent. Oh. But you now don't sound like you don't sound like a girl from Hialeah. Well, I don't live in Hialeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so now, um, I know you said you saw it through the lenses of your mom, but I know you entered the legal world, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So how did you get into that? And were there any challenges there or not really? Like, you know, as an Afro-Latina? Yeah. So that was um I, so I, I knew at a very early age that there were two things I wanted to do in my life. And that was uh, work in law. I wanted to be a lawyer and actually a Supreme Court justice. It was one of my, my I mean, I, I have this picture of like an actual picture of me in the kitchen talking to my dad. Um, I was like 15, 16 years old. And I remember him telling, I grew up in a really dogmatic Christian home. Mm-hmm. And so there was always, and my father was a political journalist. Right, so right. So there was always this, um, he said there was always this not contradiction but like this battle between you know living by this Christian dogma and wanting to be a politician where there is so much other that happens right right um, if you know what I'm saying so yeah. I, I always wanted to be like my dream was really in at least within law was to be a Supreme Court justice like I'm I've always been fascinated by the law I've always been fascinated by legal rhetoric and the idea that 
everybody should, you know, has an opportunity to be defended. And just, you know, the structure of that. And I used to watch Perry Mason and I'm like, I want to do that. Like, that's what I want to do. I was just really fascinated by that. And then I loved Whitney Houston Mm -hmm. and said, I'm going to be an entertainer. Like I'm going to be on stage and entertaining people. Mm -hmm. Like I was very young and I was very clear with the career path that I wanted to take. And so as my dad, a political journalist and, you know, our dinner conversations were always around Cuba and Cuban politics and, um, you know, that implication. I was just always really interested in international politics and international policy and law. And so, yeah, Mm -hmm. I studied politics Mm -hmm. in undergrad. And so the, you know, the natural thing was for me to go to law school because, you know, again, coming from these cultural backgrounds and second generation, even though I'm first generation, you know, our parents come here and they want us to be the best at the best profession. So the doctors, the lawyers, right? Yep, yep exactly. Very, it's a very typical and very common narrative for our families. So, and my parents really didn't push that on me, but they supported the fact that that's what I inherently wanted to do. So um, yeah, I went to undergrad and then I started law school. Um, I started a law school program in Georgetown and had deferred my admission at DePaul University in Chicago and ultimately decided that I wasn't ready to actually go to law school and finish. So I worked in law, my very first law job, I was still an undergrad and I worked for an immigration attorney. Wow. And when I worked for the, this is pivotal here. When I worked for this immigration attorney, she was from Chile and mm-hmm. she was not a nice person. Mm-hmm. She was so, so indignant and so rude to these Latinos who had just come here from whatever country they were coming from, El Salvador, Mexico, Honduras, lo que sea. Mm-hmm. And I just saw how she was so not nice to them and hmm. she would belittle them. And she was very elitist with these people who didn't speak English, right. but they were going to her for legal counsel on how to become um, how to become citizens or naturalized. And I was her paralegal and I learned so much about the immigration process and getting people naturalized in this country and the red tape that people have to go through. There's mm-hmm. so much red tape. This was a long, long, long time ago. So I don't know if that's changed. But that time period, I was a junior in college um, or sophomore in college, that triggered in me wanting to be a a voice and advocate for our people, like disenfranchised people. So whether you're an immigrant, a woman, um, that's really where that interest sparked. And so then, you know, kind of law in general. Um, And I loved working in law. I really did. I did corporate securities for a long time. And that situation was interesting because I worked for um, white partners who I think just didn't have a lot of exposure to black and brown people and black and brown people who were educated. So I'll give like my very last job, um, I was emotionally tapping out from working in law. I was really, really, really digging deep into my artistry and my creative Mm-hmm. spirit and energy and really wanted to explore music this whole entertainment piece mm-hmm. so um we were in a fiduciary duty case and trial and I would take my cello to work um because we just have really long nights so I would take my cello to work to just kind of play and practice yeah in between you know whatever assignments I had and my the attorney to whom I uh, reported was just so confused he was like <laughs> oh you play the banjo and I'm like so those kinds of misconceptions right like completely clueless and 
just had a hard time visualizing this little brown girl mm-hmm. who spoke mm-hmm. Spanish and played the cello and went to UVA and was very educated. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it was that was an interesting time because I, I knew that I, I really had this passion for law and I really knew that I could excel in it. But I was really, really struggling with wanting to live my dream and that was to sing and, and perform and, and entertain. Mm-hmm. And when I got laid off in 2005, I was like, I'm never going back to work for these people again, like ever. And right. I prayed about it and I didn't have a blueprint. I didn't have a plan, but I just knew that there was something else out there for me. And I just took a big chance on myself and I did. And I never went back to law, like ever, 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 ever. ever. I love that, that you yeah. followed your dream. What yeah. gave you the courage to do that? Because I think a lot of Latinas sometimes, and I, you know, I fall fault of that as well you know there's that fear of taking that leap and bound of doing something different uh really following so what what gave you that courage I don't I don't know I I honestly don't know I don't I've never really spent time thinking about it um I just knew that I I was such an independent thinker and Mm -hmm. I was really driven by this passion for art. Um, my grandfather um, spoke like four languages. He, he played like eight instruments and self-taught. He was a composer. My yeah. uncle is a concert, you know, international pianist. My father speaks like seven languages. And um, I've just been exposed to a lot of culture and a lot of art. And I really wanted, like, it's just in when it's just innate in you. When you're an artist, it's just kind of like innate in you when it's in your blood. And I really wanted to explore that. Um, mm-hmm. I think the courage, if I had to, if I had to pinpoint probably my mom, I mean, my mom left and this chokes me up when I think about it. Cause she is such a boss. Like my mom left Cuba and everything she knew, she left her entire family mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to support my dad and this wild dream he had. Like I really get choked up thinking about how courageous she was to, embark on this journey and totally unsupported you know no she didn't speak the language she wasn't educated my mom dropped out of high school to start this big 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 family and she blindly believed in my dad and knew that there was something better for us here in the states mm-hmm. and but not for my mom believing in my dad and saying okay and my mom and my grandmother were like this like they were peas in the pod the way that she and I are so yeah, 25, she left at 20, yeah, 25, she left Cuba and everything she's ever known to come start this life. And like, how courageous mm-hmm. and, and you're doing it under duress, right? Like you're leaving everything, you know, not because you want to, but because you have to. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, if I had to pinpoint and nobody's ever asked me that, all the interviews I've done, nobody's ever asked me that where, where the courage came from. But I would probably have to attribute that to my mom. I mean, she's, yeah, pretty badass lady. I love that. And, yeah. it's, you know, her belief in you, too. You probably always knew. And as we yeah. daughters. Oh, know. my God. Yeah, my mom is my, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like, and that's what we need to do for each other. Like, believe yeah. in each other, elevate each yeah. other, and help. So it's interesting. My, my mom, Nihita, you know, because I, I will say, this is for anybody listening, you know, when you're trying to step out on your own and you don't think that you can do it. I'm, I'm literally here to tell you that you can. Like, I didn't have any savings. I didn't have any money. 
Um, I didn't have a plan. I had no idea what the heck I was going to do. Like, I just didn't know. But I just knew that I wasn't going back to law. Like, I knew 1,000% <laughs> with a surety that I was not going to go back to corporate and that I was going to try to do this. Um, I guess in the back of my mind, I always knew that if it didn't work out, I could go back to law school, right? Because I have this foundation. Right. Um, but I just, I always said yes to myself. Like I, lit I always said yes to myself and I was very curious. Like I asked a thousand questions and I aligned myself with the right people. But with respect to my mom, when I had these valleys of not having any money, you know, not knowing how my rent was going to get paid, not knowing how my car note was going to get paid. Cause this was like, these are true stories that people don't talk about enough. Like it was, I had really, really, really difficult times, especially when I was living in Atlanta, trying to build this brand. Mm -hmm. And she would be like, me that go back to law school you know, go become a lawyer. Like you're, you're struggling for no reason. And I was like, mommy, no, I can do this. Like there's something out there for me. Like I can really do this. Like mm -hmm. you just have to believe and trust that I, that, that I will figure it out. And now she's like, oh my God. Like, I, I mean, she, she is so proud. She is so remarkably proud. I, not just, I don't think just because I did it, but because I was so, and am so determined, right. Yes. To do it. She's now um, following yeah. your dream. Yeah. yeah, completely. So how did you pivot then to the culinary world from the legal Yeah. Um, so when I moved to Atlanta, when I, so I got laid off and I moved to Atlanta because I was like, oh, I'm going to sing. I'm going to be a professional singer. And I had already started recording an album here in D.C. Um, so I was like, if I move to Atlanta, I can, there's a big music industry in Atlanta. And I was kind of tapped into some really big names before I moved down there through some friends and family. And... I was singing and I was touring overseas. And when I was starting to realize that the music wasn't really cutting in, mm. in terms of like paying the bills. Yeah. Um, word. I don't know how got out that I cook and that I love to cook and that I celebrate my culture through food. And I'm not even lying, girl. This little, this is exactly <laughs> how it happened. Sin decirte mentira. Mm -hmm. um, there was an Asian woman, a Chinese woman in Atlanta who grew up in a Cuban household. Bizarre. Okay. Sweet lady. So she was, she very much knows Cuban culture. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the exact nuances. I, I don't know if she was adopted into a Cuban family or her step parent was a Cuban person, but she speaks fluent Spanish and, you know, she very much identifies with being Cuban. So anyhow, she told this person about my interest in food and that I cook and that I host parties or whatever. That person invited me to cook on Fox, Good Day Atlanta on January 1st, 2008. So I was here in DC visiting my family for Christmas and I got the call, let's say December, like 22nd or something like that. I had yeah. no online presence. I had like no formal connection to food, but I was like, what? Go on Fox and cook and teach people live about my culture and flan y, y arroz con gris and, and rabo or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I was like, yes. So talk about being bold and courageous, right? Mm -hmm. um, literally launched a blog, Flamboyant Eats, which is a word plan flan and flamboyant. Um, I launched that blog on January 1st. So I flew back to Atlanta, spent all night January 31st cooking, um, had never, ever, ever done TV ever in my entire life. So I was green as all the plants <laughs> in my home. <laughs> and um, I went on TV with a beret on my head. Like the fashion was crazy. <laughs> and um, I cooked in somebody else's restaurant. 
And that literally is what kicked off my food career. Oh so, my God. That's amazing. Um, so then I, I hosted a, an event. Um, I was doing, so when I worked in law, I did a lot of pro bono work for people with AIDS. There was a big AIDS problem here in DC or community. And mm -hmm. um, I used to do pro bono work for them. So anyhow, in, in Atlanta, I used to produce these um, creative events in support of the AIDS community down there. It was called Creative Cause. And I would have artists out and, and um, a whole bunch of market people come out like a marketplace. And it was a beautiful high-end event. Anyhow, I had a local celebrity MC the event. So when I went to thank him, this person who put me on Fox, she's like, hey, why don't you come out and cook um, at my home? And that particular dinner party ended up being attended by a whole bunch of media people. Mm -hmm. And they loved what I made. I made a whole bunch of Cuban food. And then that's when she invited me to go on Fox. So that dinner party turned into the invitation to cook on Fox. And then literally the rest is her story. Oh, I love <laughs> it. It's, it's your story. It, it's, it's, it's my story. It's how it happened. Friends, so that was, friends yeah, Jan, yeah, January 1st, 2008. And then I got a call from Emeril Lagasse in March of 2008. What? Wow. Yeah. So I flew back to DC and I auditioned for his show at the time called Emerald Green. Oh my god. Which gosh. was on which was on this. So this was literally two this is Emerald. months into my Emerald, yeah. Emerald. At the time like Emerald was like, you know, everywhere. Everywhere. So um I flew back to DC and I got the I got, you know, they cast me and we did an episode called Cuba Libre and we filmed it here in April of 2008 and then it aired July of 2008. And then after that, everything just really snowballed. And that's when I started pursuing aggressively TV. I was like, this is what I want to do. Like, yeah. I want to be on TV cooking. Yeah. Um, and it was very bold because I had no experience on TV. I didn't go to culinary school. But again, I was just driven by this passion to really celebrate my culture and let people know that we are so beautiful and diverse mm -hmm. and our food is amazing. And and Latinos can come to this country and thrive and be successful and do really well. And, and it's beautiful because I get to like celebrate a very American culture, but also a very Latina culture and a very Caribbean culture every single day through food, you know? So I love it. Yeah. yeah. So that's how, so that's how I transitioned. Look, I was never going to do food in my life. Like I was going to sing or <laughs> I was going to be an attorney. Like food was never in in the realm of possibilities or even interest, quite honestly, like I had no interest in food at all, like zero. But yeah, like it, I went, look, I, I, it was thrown on my lap and I ran with it, like literally. You and never I wrote a, know, yeah. right? You never, you never know. know. You never know, yeah. And I say, I, I literally say this, if you say yes to yourself, it will, it will come, like, yeah, you, it'll come, yeah. I love it, say yes to yourself. Yes, and now, please. of course, we need to talk about your show on TV, yeah. <laughs> Culture Kitchen. Yeah. I mean, and this is where you get to share yourself and you yeah. and your story. So yeah. um, I know with the second season, it got picked up, right? Second season. Yeah. So um, I love it. I love the food. Yeah. You, you amazed me. Told you me. that little thing. <laughs> yeah, with your cooking. So tell me about what you love about doing this show and why it's different from other shows anybody else would watch, any other cooking shows. Yeah, um, so Culture Kitchen... Look, the pandemic was 2020 
was like mm. the weirdest year ever. Mm. And how crazy yeah. that it was 2020, right? Yeah. Um, like crazy, right? Like I we're we're in the early parts of 2022, and then still like 2020 was weird. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> so weird. So to think for me that in 2020 I got a food show. Like I was approached by Powerhouse Productions, my mm-hmm. awesome producers, um, to awesome black women to celebrate my culture. Like they didn't come to me and say, hey, we want to develop US talent. This is an idea we have for you. They were like, we love you. We love what you already do. Let's just package it in a beautiful, formal way and show the world who you are and what you have to offer. And I just, I, I still pinch myself, honestly, because I'm like, the very thing that I said to myself in 2008 and I went out for, because girl, I can't tell you how many auditions I went to on Food Network, how mm. many videos I submitted to like the cooking channel, to the travel network, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. so many auditions, so many self tapes and nothing hit, nothing landed. Um, so when, when Powerhouse came to me and offered me a cooking show to celebrate my culture and me, yes. and I was my own host, I'm like, this is not like, this is, there's like, I can't believe this is happening. Um, so yeah, like I, we did Culture Kitchen and the beautiful thing about Culture Kitchen, and it's funny, like I didn't want that name. I was like, no, like I don't like Culture Kitchen. And my mm-hmm. producer will tell you, um, and Michelle Rice, who's, we've become really good friends. She's the president of TV One and Cleo. You know, we had a conversation recently and she's like, you know, talent is so funny about things like that, but you know, I know what I'm doing and they need to trust me that, you know, we know what we're doing when we come up with these things. But they, I mean, they did consult with me mm-hmm. and now I love the name. Because it 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 encaptures literally everything that I've been doing for the last 16, 17 years. And that is celebrating la cultura, you know, celebrating our culture. Um, And I'm really, really proud of the show. I'm really, really proud that my producers who are not Latina, but are black women, trusted that I knew and know my culture and that I could do it blindly with their finessing. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. so we worked on, you know, my recipes together. Um, but they gave me 1000% creative control. So every recipe on season one and what will come from season two and beyond, you know, I, it's my food. It's my, it's my, it's my food. It's my recipe. It's my story. Mm -hmm. And they, they just really gave me a platform and said, you know, this is what, this is how we do it. And, you know, just do you. And literally it's how it happened. Like they, we showed up at my studio and they just let me be me. So everything from like the hair to the fashion, to the food, to my guests um, was all me. And they just, they did what they had to do to make it look and sound beautiful. So when I, when you ask, you know, what makes my show different from other cooking shows, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really a celebration of um, the culture and who we are as Latinos and in my case specifically Afro Latinos so I got to bring my mom on like I got to celebrate the very people who have supported this crazy wild dream of mine and the people who have sacrificed everything like my parents sacrificed everything in order for me to be able to do this Mm -hmm. um so like my favorite episode was with my mom like just me and mommy and then my second favorite episode was with my entire family like how awesome is that like 
How many people really get to say that they get to celebrate their whole family? So my mom, my dad, my my three brothers, my sister, my baby niece, Sophia. Um, Yeah, it was awesome. Like it was like, I could not have asked for a better first season. Yeah, it was really great. No, it's amazing. And to see that representation, I mean, I wonder exactly the representation that is not there. I mean, I don't know if you realize like how much of a game changer you are, like you are breaking ground. I'm telling you, I'm telling you girls, seriously, you are breaking ground and progressing the way that our community is seeing, not only as Latinas, but the cultural Latinas from different cultures, the Afro-Latinas, the Latinas from different parts of the world, you know, globally, you know, and here locally. And I feel like I'm seeing that shift. And it was so perfect that these women came to you because they saw that shift too. I don't know if you see it from within, because sometimes when you're in it, like when you're in it, you like don't see what's happening around there. Right. But there, it was time. Yeah, that's a a good point because I, I, you know, my lawyer who's been with me forever and he's a white guy and he, he he's from Miami so he gets us like he's been in Miami and he loves Latinas and mm-hmm. and whatever but I have expressed to him for 15 16 years my frustration with these big networks mm-hmm. and the industry just not getting us like they just yeah. don't get us like mm-hmm. they don't understand Latino people, Black people, Afro-Latinos, like, girl, like, we, Afro-Latinos until recently weren't even, like, a thing, right? Right. Um, Because you were either, you were literally either Mexican or you're Black. Like, there's no, like, in between, or you're Puerto Rican. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Or you're Boricua. Right. Um, And there's a lot of crossover, obviously, but there are so many other people and so many other ways of expressing the culture. So, Yes, that Rochelle and Sonia got it, and that Cleo got it, and that TV One got it, and that Michelle got it. Mm-hmm. To me, yes, it, it it was that time, and I just happened to be at the right place at the right time, and I was also ready. Like I was literally, I've been because yeah. I've always wondered when is this going to hit. Like everything that I'm doing has to make sense. Like the fact that I didn't go back to law school, the fact that I've been struggling so much, but the fact that I've traveled the world and explored food, and I've worked with amazing chefs and I've gotten to meet amazing people and I've gotten to learn so much about food and food stories and food ways and the diaspora. I've always wondered like, when is this all going to make sense? Like this has to come together. Um, And they got it. And so now I realize that it took, it had, I I had to go through all that in order to be completely ready so that when I was approached to do this, they didn't have to develop me. They didn't have to coach me. They didn't have to train me. Like I was already ready. Mm-hmm. So season one was like, and they didn't want to give me 16 episodes. They were like, she's never hosted a TV show by herself. And Rochelle, I hope that she'll listen to the episode, but she was like, no, she's got it. Like B can do this by herself and she can do 16 episodes. So that's also when you talk about stepping outside, like when I, when I do pause to think about what I've done, because for me, it's work, right? Like for me, it's like, this is my obligation and this is what I want to do. But but when I step outside and look at the impact, like, wow, like they really trusted that I can do what I do. And they knew that it was time. And it like, it's, you're right. The time is now. And I'm happy to be um, a very loud Latina representing the culture. So, you know, when I like very specific things, like I wore my hair, one of the headshots that I use, like I wore my hair picked out and really, really big because I want people to see that Latinas don't just look like what they it looked like on the telenovelas, which is most times yeah. blonde and light-eyed and yeah. very fair-skinned. Mm-hmm. And I'm not that person. And there are so many mulatas, or I hate—I actually don't like to use that word, so scratch that, but there are so many negras mm-hmm. um, 
he got and he has so many black women, non Latina and otherwise that just aren't represented on TV. Right. right. And I I wanted to be very intentional about saying, hey, this is who we are, and we look like every like we're not we're not um we're not a monolithic people, right? Latinos are not monolithic, and black people are not monolithic. Like we're so diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, I speak Spanish on the show. I speak Spanglish on the show. Yeah. You know, I pay homage to my grandmother who was black and my grandfather who was Jamaican. So I, I, I try to, I try to invoke all of those elements that people would see and want to relate to. So if a Jamaican person's watching, like I want them to feel like I'm really speaking to them. Right. If yeah. a Puerto Rican person's watching, I want them to know that the mofongo that I'm making is because I have spent time ago. If the Mexican food that I've made, I want Mexicans to watch and be like, that girl legitimately spent time in Mexico and knows the culture. Um, same for Argentina and Israel, every, every country that I've covered. Um, I want people to know that we, we you know, we're educated and we're traveled and, and we like good food and, and we're successful and we're professional and we can do this too. And we, you know, have fun with our hair and, you know, my hair is not straight. My hair is very curly and big and sometimes mm-hmm. I highlight it. Sometimes I don't like right now. It's really dark, you know. <laughs> so I, I, wanted to rep- yeah, I wanted to represent us in a very true, authentic way. Yeah, and you're yeah. doing it, and we're so Thank proud you. of you. Thank Honestly, you. We are, yeah. and we're rooting Thank for you, you and yeah. supporting you and cheering you on. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. So you know, and I, I, I will, I will say real quickly, like that's yeah. one thing that Cleo and Cleo specifically gets. Like they get that women are diverse, that mm-hmm. women are beautiful and colorful, and the imagination and the and the awareness of who we are we're not just you know what media and tv have for so long wanted to portray and still look we're 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 just scratching Mm -hmm. the surface there's still so much work to do hollywood specifically has so much work to do to bring us into the fold right yeah Um, yeah it's true the, the roles and the opportunities still aren't as equitable as they are for our non-Latino and non-Black peers. So Absolutely. I'm here to push the envelope and continue, you know, exactly. being the face of, yeah. Exactly. That's why you're the game changer. Yes, thank so you, proud of Thank you. you. <laughs> of course. Yes, yes. Well, listen, bringing it back um, um, yeah. to the food, because the one thing too, I think that people might, you know, be surprised about, especially if they're not familiar right. with the background and the different like cultural overlaps. I mean, cause you've right. got elements of African, European, right. Spanish. In there. Yep, totally I mean, is so there, funny. um, is there like a food or a dish you can describe that has like, you know, a good mix of that, that you're showcasing like on the show or maybe one of your favorite, you know, dishes that might surprise yeah. people. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I was talking to my producer about for season two is mm-hmm. like, I want to get more into the Carib- the Afro-Caribbean, right? So season mm-hmm. one, I spent a lot of time introducing. So the point of season one was, was to introduce the audience to who I am, right? And yeah. I'm a food writer who's traveled the world and explores food cultures and food ways yeah. through my lens, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I a lot of the dishes that I did were my interpretations of things that I've enjoyed overseas. So like I highlight again, like Israel, Argentina, Puerto Rico, Casi Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I, like, so I celebrate or I introduce people to these international food experiences. So for season two and beyond, like I really want to dive deep into the culture, right? Like the origins of our food. So for example, you know, blacks, black culture, non-Latino, Southern mm-hmm. culture, um, expresses a lot of um 
um, background on like yams and certain beans and peas and certain vegetables like okra, right? Yes. And that's mm-hmm. ubiquitous in black Southern cuisine. Um, but it's also our food too. So we eat a lot of quimombo, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we eat a lot of all the beans, actually. Every single bean imaginable we eat. Yep. <laughs> we, eat we eat all of the root tubers. So like calabaza, you know? Yep, um, yep. Sweet potato, uh, butternut squash, um, taro root, malanga, mm-hmm. yatue, all those things, right? Yuca. And all of those things have roots in Africa. And so for me, one big missing piece in the African-American story is the food made its way to the Caribbean before it came to the United States. So yeah. I really want to get into that. So dishes like... Um, as simple as rice and beans, like literally as simple as rice and beans, because why do we eat rice and beans? Why is rice such a baseline food in Latin culture? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's because of the crop in Africa and what they were able to produce. And then that was again brought through the slave trade to the Caribbean. Why do we eat plantains the way that we eat plantains? So for an example, like in, in Puerto Rico, they call it mofongo, mm-hmm. so a plantain mash. So Puerto Ricans call it mofongo, Dominicans call it mangu, and Cubans call it fufu. And so coincidentally, West Africans call it fufu as well. Mm-hmm. But people don't know that. Yeah. Right? Um, so I really want to dive deep into that. So I made a mofongo on, I think, like the second episode, um, and I, I made this beautiful seafood mofongo with like lobster and shrimp and um, mm, a few yeah. other things. Delicious. So that to me is, yeah, that to me is representative of like Latin Caribbean culture. Um, but I would say probably the chickpeas with butternut squash for me is a recipe and a dish that's very much representative of that Afro Latino Caribbean because you've got chickpeas, you've got squash, and I don't. I try to stay away from pork, so I don't make it with pork. But my mom at home makes it with chorizo mm-hmm. um, or ham hock. Yeah. So for me, like it incorporates all of those elements of of the cultures. Um, and then I just love oxtail. I mean, I have to talk about oxtail because it's oxtail for me was like my claim to fame because I make it in the pressure cooker and it's a beloved meat that used to be kind of like a poor person's food that people would just stick in stews. Mm-hmm. Um, so going back to my very first job in food, when I worked at Blanca's restaurant, which is an El Salvadorian and Mexican restaurant, like authentic, authentic, um, they would use rabo or oxtail in the soups. And now oxtail is like this delicacy that's very expensive. It's like $19 a pound, it's outrageous. <laughs> and so you can enjoy ra- braised or you know stewed or you know, pulled and made patties into. Mm-hmm. So I love oxtail. Like oxtail is, girl, one of my favorite dishes huh? ever. Yeah, I love oxtail. And I, I've played, I've played around with a whole bunch of different methods and techniques and flavor profiles and different ways of, of making it. So like, there's a really great Jamaican version that mm-hmm. I didn't grow up eating, but I make now. Um, I obviously make a very traditional Cuban version, and then I have different modifications of that, and then other things with um oxtail like sometimes i'll add it to my pho which is a vietnamese soup 
Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, can I tell yeah. you when you're talking about like the deep dive you're doing and connecting all the cultures, I got yeah. chills. I got yeah. happy chills like all over. So I'm no, so No, it is, it is. It's so important. And like I use a molcajete to mm-hmm. mash up yeah. the platano. And I, I want people to understand how these, all these cultures interconnect. So, you know, we go to Mexican restaurants here and girl, I will, people ask me, what's your favorite cuisine? And I have said a thousand times, obviously Cuban, because it's what I know and it's in my heart, but true Mexican food is one of the best cuisines in the world. It is ancient. It is rooted in so much history and so much method. And it's so watered down here in the States. So like, where can I find a good sope in DC? Like people are like, sope, what's a sope? Using the molcajete for me is important because it paid homage to how, you know, the ancient tribes um, cooked. And that Mm -hmm. was all that was available. You got a big old rock stone that was shaped into this thing and the mortar and pestle. Um, So I actually collect different versions of mortar and pestles. But the molcajete particularly, or especially the Mexican version, I used on the show to make um, the uh, plantain mash, the mofongo. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was, again, my way of just celebrating the cultures and exhibiting Mexican technique, but I'm making a traditional Puerto Rican dish. Um, And that's really important. I feel like if we don't tell the story, then we're just eating food. And I always say, in order to really understand a people and a culture, you have to know their food. And it's such a perfect conduit. Um, And so if you understand the food story, you'll be able to respect the people more and you'll be able to you know, who these people are and who the farmers are and, and who these laborers are who toil to get our food on the table. And it's not just por gusto, you know? But, and, then you're able to enjoy, and, then you're able to, and then you're able to enjoy your food so much more because you know where it's coming from and how difficult or not it was to get, you know, on our plate. So true, so true. Yeah. Well, before we go, I do have to yep. bring up the fact that you've noticed that Milena's not with us today. Yes, She's yes, actually yes, under yes. the weather, she's sick. And of course, as we know, all our moms always expect from the Latin culture or maybe yeah. the Afro, um, you know, Cuban culture, there's always something that your moms like give you in order to get you, yeah. you know, better. Like what's, um, I guess, traditional healing food that maybe you rely on when you're under the weather. Oh girl, my mom's chicken soup. 1000%. Literally it is, it is magical. It is my mom has, I'm not even lying, girl. Like people. Everybody has their thing, mm-hmm. but my mom's chicken soup legitimately, truly, authentically, this is validated, saves people. We have a very dear family friend who's very, very, very sick with horrible kidney failure. And he's been very sick for years, like for the better part of his life and has spent his life in okay. and out of the hospital, like in and out of the hospital, undergoing oh. all kinds of surgeries and transplants. And the one thing he always asks for is my mom's chicken soup. and he's always like, baby, like the chicken soup, literally every time I'm in the hospital gives me so much strength and energy. Wow. And girl, I vouched to that. Like I was just sick a couple of weeks ago and I lost my appetite. And the only thing I wanted was my mom's chicken soup. And I swear to goodness, I swear to the good God who made us all <laughs> that chicken soup girl it's amazing I don't I don't even have words like that's how <laughs> okay did she have a secret ingredient what should Milena do because I don't know if we can get your mom's chicken soup to her oh yeah Milena 
I, if I could like if I could like back you steal my mom's chicken soup and send it to you. Um, so so you know in Latin culture like we use fideo right fideo are noodles right mm -hmm. and I don't like fideo in my mom's chicken soup because it takes away from the broth and the chicken and the vegetables. Mm -hmm. So my mom she has a different she has different combinations like depending on whatever she feels like making. But typically she's got plátano maduro so plantain okay. in there. She's got butternut squash. She's got potato. Okay. She's got carrots. And if she does potato, she won't do yuca. Okay. I prefer yuca. So she's got, and then of course the chicken. But girl, it's really in that broth. It's really in that broth. Mm -hmm. And she um, simmers it. It's all like, she puts it all, all together. I was like, mami, ponlo en la presión. She's like, because it'll be done like in 20 minutes in the pressure cooker. But oh, no, yeah. she slow, she slow cooks the chicken soup. It'll take two, three hours. And... She, when she makes a big batch, she'll put out a family text like, oh yeah, say sopa de pollo, who's coming over? So by the time I get to the house, she's got like containers and everyone, it's everyone's name on it, you know, for it. And I'm like, hey, I, I asked for a pot for me. She's like, stop being so greedy. Like I have to tell everybody else. I was like, well then just make me one pot. Um, but one, here's one trick I'll give you Milena or to give Milena. Mm -hmm. When you add, if you add, like, let's say you add butternut squash, yuca, plantain, right. carrots, tomato, yeah. onion, and peppers. Okay. She'll take like one or two of each out, a little bit of that broth, and she'll process it to make a puree. And okay. she'll add that puree back to the soup. Okay, girl. I'm writing this down, I'm taking notes. Oh girl, it is, I mean, <laughs> actually, I will send you, okay, will perfect. Send you a link, no, I'll send you a link to an NPR interview that I did years ago, where I talked about how to use these vegetables to puree them and add them to a soup or a stock or whatever, yeah. It's delicious. Perfect. Wonderful. Well, I, I'm going to definitely yeah. do that. And that way you're not wasting anything. You know, you're not wasting the skin. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, something, help her get better for sure. Something new, yeah. something new that I learned. And also a new thing for everybody, which I think we should all take into account in world, in life, you know, business, yeah. personal, whatever. Wait, say yes to yourself. Yeah, say <laughs> yes to yourself. Because you will get no's every turn, right? And mm -hmm. every part of your journey, somebody's going to say no to you. Yeah. Whether it's your spouse, whether it's, you know, your, your peer, your coworker, you know, some, every, somebody's always going to say no to you. Like you're always yeah. going to get no, like that's inevitable. And that's part of the journey, but you have to say yes to yourself, period. Like you have to say yes to peace. You have to say, yes, you can. You have to say, yes, I deserve. Yes, I will. Um, yes, I will walk away from this situation. Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. you have to say you have to say yes to yourself very important thank you yeah. so much chef Bren loved having you. Bren loved thank you, you so much we could talk forever yes. we'll have to do yes, it again we can, yeah for sure yeah. thank you so much i appreciate it all right well thank you and um keep on yeah. saying yes and we'll see you on yes. tv soon yeah buen provecho thank you gracias a mis latinas right. adios y besos bye bye bye